1984, Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown went on a crime spree that left many injured and dead. In their trials and appeals, the same question kept being asked. Is an abusive childhood enough of a mitigating factor to keep Coleman and Brown out of the death chamber? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to the show. If this is your first time tuning in, you probably don't know how far off my usual material today's topic is going to be. I don't typically cover serial killers or spree killers, and I don't usually cover cases that are so brutal. So today is going to be a little bit different of an episode We are talking about Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown, two American spree killers. Before we jump in, I may use spree killer and serial killers pretty interchangeably. The generally accepted distinction is this idea of a cooling off period between killings. Serial killers cool off, spree killers do not. But that's debatable. And there are experts out there who will look at the same killer and disagree on if they should be considered a spree killer or a serial killer. It's not essential to this episode, but I'm pedantic. So this is an explanation for my fellow pedants out there. I want to thank Haley Gray for researching this episode. It was a beast of a case to untangle. And it also carries pretty much every kind of content warning that exists. As always, I won't give details not necessary to understanding the case, but a lot happens here. So if you don't like kid cases or abuse cases or serial killer cases, listener discretion is advised. Additionally, if you don't like cases that delve into mitigating factors that formed a killer's worldview, this isn't the episode for you. And I get it. Sometimes people do such horrible things that it makes us recoil at the idea of trying to understand them or of understanding them. So if that's you, I'll be back next week with another case more in my usual track. So now that I have about three listeners left, let's jump into it. We're going to start somewhere we never start, with the killer's background. Alton Coleman was born in November 1955 in a town called Waukegan, Illinois. It's considered part of the Chicago metro area, about 21 miles from the Chicago city border to the north. It's a working-class city. And when Coleman was growing up there, it was about 50 to 60,000 people. The neighborhood where Coleman grew up was wood shacks, garbage dumps, junkyards, and it was also the red light district of the city. He grew up with his mother, Mary Bates, and his maternal grandmother, Alma Hosea, and He bounced between the two homes, neither being a stable or safe place. 
Mary was a very broken person by the time Coleman was even born. She had her first child at the age of 14, a son named Donnie. When Donnie was a few years old, Mary was arrested on charges of giving a man syphilis. Mary tested negative for syphilis, but they still held her in a psychiatric hospital for two years while relatives took care of Donnie. In the 1950s, when Donnie was about eight or nine, Mary left Illinois and Donnie to marry Herbert Coleman, a soldier from Oklahoma City. In Oklahoma, she had two more sons in pretty short order. They were still very little when Deborah moved back to Illinois in the mid-1950s, essentially abandoning them. She was living in Illinois and separated from her husband when she got pregnant with Alton Coleman, who was her fourth son. If she knew who his father was, she never told him. And she gave him the last name of the husband she left behind in Oklahoma. After Alton Coleman was born, Mary threw her newborn into the trash, literally into a trash can. Alma, his grandmother, rescued him. But this isn't some fantastic story where she took the little baby home and showed him love and patience and everything was great. Alma was abusive. She regularly whipped him using things like extension cords. She told him, even when he was very little, that his mother didn't love him, didn't want him, basically telling him what a burden he was. And it's been alleged that she even sexually abused him. The few times Alton would go live with his mother, it wasn't any better. Mary was also physically abusive. She worked as a sex worker and didn't bother sending Coleman out of the room while she was working. According to the FBI, Coleman was first arrested at five years old for stealing a man's watch. The man was a John his mom was having sex with at the time he took the watch. So we're talking 1960, 1961. We have a five-year-old who is abused, neglected, being exposed to sexual situations well beyond his ability to understand. So when the police show up on this complaint that the little boy stole a man's watch, they decided to teach him a lesson by arresting him rather than trying to figure out What in the world was happening here? The reports of abuse from Coleman's mother and grandmother are not just his word. His siblings who grew up with him confirmed it. Because not counting the two children Mary had in Oklahoma, she had five children. She had Donnie Coleman, and then she had two girls and another boy. One of the girls, Terry, is the only one who lived with Mary more often than not. Everyone else was farmed out to relatives or they were in and out of Mary's house. And they all confirmed the same thing. Mary and Alma were abusive. Even neighbors knew what was going on. But this was just a culture and a time of minding your own business when it came to child abuse. And this is an extreme example of that and of the danger of that. One thing that I've only really seen Coleman say is that his mother prostituted him out when he was a teenager in order to make income. 
This claim does need to be taken with a grain of salt because Alton Coleman was not a reliable narrator, but it does track with the other behaviors and abuses that were coming his way that were confirmed. As a teenager, he turned to drugs to cope with all of this. So let's go ahead and talk about the McDonald triad for a minute. This comes up a lot. It's that serial killer pattern we hear about from childhood, bedwetting, cruelty to animals, and fire starting. Coleman had two of these. He had an issue with bedwetting, and his grandmother actually called him pissy because of it. And not just occasionally. Pissy became his nickname all the time. Neighbors, other kids called him that. He wet the bed until he was about 12 years old, which actually tracks with a fairly normal development because bedwetting until the onset of puberty is really not unheard of. It's not super common, but it happens. So when I hear someone wet the bed till they were 12, that sounds like the onset of puberty. That sounds like it could possibly be normal development. The other part of the McDonald triad that Coleman exhibited was cruelty to animals, though he blamed his grandmother for this. In his words, his grandmother practiced voodoo and required him to help her with animal sacrifices. I'm going to say that if that's true and his bedwetting lasted to 12 years old and then it stopped, I don't see the McDonald triad here. And there is some significant criticism of this triad anyway. It's supposed to help us see these childhood behaviors shared by many killers and then intervene when the child is showing these warning signs. The criticism is that these three behaviors don't indicate a future likelihood of homicidal behavior so much as they point to current abuse issues. That was definitely the case with Alton Coleman if these things would fit in that. So yes, on one hand, if we have a child showing these behaviors, maybe we need to intervene, not so much to prevent them from becoming a killer, but because that child may be in current crisis and may need help now. So let's keep going with Coleman. 1970, by that point, he was out of school. He never even completed the ninth grade. His first arrest, aside from when he was five years old, was April 1976, when he was 16 years old. It was for a burglary charge. He was sent to juvie, but pretty soon home on probation. About a year after this charge in May 1973, while he was on probation, he was arrested for disorderly conduct. He wanted his mom to buy him a jacket. It was a $6 jacket which would be about $35 today. She wouldn't buy it for him, and he flipped out, damaging her apartment. This behavior is something else people who knew Coleman said. He had a temper, and it seemingly came out of nowhere, and when it did show up, he was out of control. On the disorderly conduct charge, he was convicted and fined. The much more serious crimes start in December 1973. Maybe I shouldn't say start. He started getting caught. We really don't know for sure when his sexual crimes began, but on December 27th, 
1973, he and a friend kidnapped a woman at gunpoint. His friend was just there for a robbery. They were going to take her car. They got about 100 bucks from her, which would be $580-ish today. But Coleman then raped the woman. The two were arrested the next day, and Coleman managed to plead this down to just the armed robbery charge, and he was given two to six years in prison. He was paroled in less than two and a half. While he was locked up, his mother Mary died of cancer, and according to the FBI, Coleman only got worse at this point. They said his mother's death was a trigger for his escalating violence. And that's really saying something because he was already impulsive and violent as a teenager. This abused and unwanted little boy had grown into what you would imagine he would. But when his mother, the source of a lot of those feelings and that trauma, died, any control over his impulses and violence was practically gone. So Coleman was out in June 1976 and arrested again in September for rape. What happened was a 17-year-old young woman named Sherry was driving a coworker named Joy home. Joy knew Coleman. And so as they're driving, they see him walking on the sidewalk. Joy wanted to ask Coleman if he had seen her boyfriend that day, so they pulled over. Coleman got in the car with them. They chatted as Sherry drove Joy home. And after she dropped her off, Coleman allegedly raped Sherry. And I have to say allegedly here because he was not convicted. But while he was in county lockup for that charge, he was charged again with three counts of sexual assault. He raped the three inmates housed with him. Yes, while facing rape charges and literally in the custody of the police, he had three more victims. He was convicted of battery and sentenced to six months in prison. In 1978, he had his girlfriend Beverly Perkins move in with him, which is to say move in with his grandmother because Coleman, who was 23 at this point, wasn't supporting himself. He never really did. He eventually worked two jobs total in his entire adult life in the late 1970s. One lasted maybe two months, and the other wasn't much longer than that. On July 1st, 1980, Coleman and Beverly got married. 17 days later, he was arrested, again for rape. This occurred 10 days after his wedding. He met a 22-year-old sailor named Dorothy. They were out at a disco. Dorothy invited him to go with her to a picnic at the naval base. They had a great time. Afterward, using this ruse of taking Dorothy to look at off-base apartments, Coleman took her to a fairly secluded area in an industrial part of town and raped her and he then drove her back to the barracks and dropped her off. Dorothy contacted the authorities, and she was able to identify him. She picked him out of a lineup. Because this wasn't a brief and terrifying moment 
where she saw her attacker. They had spent the day together. They had met at a disco. They had conversations face to face. She knew who he was and could recognize him. Coleman didn't contest the identification at trial. He testified that it was consensual. And the jury believed him and he was acquitted. The claim it was consensual got him out of a jail term, but it did cost him his marriage because here he is saying he cheated on his wife 10 days after the wedding. Though, as my researcher Haley pointed out, he was also physically abusive to Beverly. He was controlling, and there were accusations he was molesting a 12-year-old girl. So Beverly had a lot of reasons to leave him. Coleman was not single for long. In 1981, right as his marriage ended, he met Deborah Brown in a bar. She was engaged to someone else, but she almost immediately broke off that engagement to be with Coleman. I think we're seeing a little bit of what we're going to see later about Coleman. Here he managed to talk a jury out of convicting him on a rape charge. Here he is talking Deborah Brown into breaking off her engagement to basically be with him, a virtual stranger. In this case, you hear again and again and again how charming he was. And it's almost hard to imagine as we talk these situations that he's able to talk himself into by being so charming. But let's talk about Deborah Brown for a little bit. She was 19 years old when she met Coleman. He was 26. Brown's childhood was rough. It was comparable to Coleman's, but different in the exact details. Her father was in the picture, but it would have been better if he wasn't. He was extremely mentally unstable. He abused substances, mainly alcohol, to self-medicate his mental illness. And yes, he was abusive. Brown had no criminal record when she met Coleman. She had addiction issues, and she had experienced an overdose when she was 18. But her mother described her as docile, and that word will come up again and again with her. Brown went along with things. She didn't like to make waves. While we don't have specifics, a psychologist who examined Brown said she had experienced physical and sexual abuse repeatedly as a child. She had a fear of abandonment, and she was a victim of severe environmental deprivation. And I think this is an excellent term to define here. The terms pretty much define themselves. An environmental deprivation can be not having enough food or safety in the environment. But it can extend to interaction and stimulation. We're not talking that they didn't read to her enough. Severe environmental deprivation would be ignoring your kid on the regular, leaving them in their room for hours at a time. That's just an example because I'm not entirely sure her exact situation. Her mother described her as docile, and I'm hearing that that was how she survived. 
make herself invisible to avoid the abuse that comes from getting attention. Denise was IQ tested at 12 and received a score of 59, which, if we're using more modern language, is in the intellectual disability range. She was tested again as an adult, and her score was 74, which puts her in the borderline range. Additionally, as you can imagine, as a child with environmental deprivation, she lagged very, very behind her peers in emotional development, which happens in these cases of emotional neglect. She met Coleman at 19, but she might as well have been a child in pretty much every other way. Which suited Coleman completely fine because, unlike his wife, he found it a lot easier to control Brown. Brown moved into Coleman's house with his grandmother shortly after they met, and she soon became pretty much a captive in the house. She would be beaten by Coleman anytime she would leave the house without him and without his permission. That's something Coleman's ex-wife has backed up. That is something that happened in their relationship as well. Brown, being isolated from friends and family, grew more and more dependent on Coleman. She wouldn't even answer questions without looking at him to speak for her. When her family did see her, she would have bruises on her arms and her face. Her family suspected not only that Brown was abusing her, but also suspected that he was prostituting her for income. And Coleman's other violent crimes continued as well. He was arrested again in September 1981 for unlawful restraint in an incident involving two teen girls. Charges were dropped for lack of probable cause. He managed to avoid prosecution until January 1983 when he was arrested for molesting a relative, though the charges were dropped when there wasn't enough evidence. But the girl told her mother that Deborah Brown was present during at least one incident. So here we have this guy, Coleman. He has six arrests for sexual assaults, one of those arrests involving three victims. He spent a total of about three years in jail for his crimes because he kept getting away with it. The few times he was caught, he would plead out on a charge that wasn't a sex crime. On May 30th, 1984, Coleman was arraigned for yet another rape charge. He had met a woman back in February who talked to him about job opportunities. The woman had a 14-year-old daughter. Going to her house on the premise of dropping off an application, Coleman found the 14-year-old home alone and raped her. Knowing that claiming it was consensual got him acquitted before, he forced the girl to write a note saying that she enjoyed the night and they should get together again soon. That note was going to be his get-out-of-jail-free card, or so he thought. Charges were brought anyway. But the night before the arraignment on May 29th, Coleman met up with Juanita Wheat and her kids. He had befriended her a few weeks before, and she invited him over to eat a couple of times, and he just befriended her and her kids. 
Coleman told Juanita that his name was Robert Knight. He had an ID that confirmed it. So she really didn't have any reason to doubt him. Like I said, he had this charm. He could disarm almost anyone and make them feel like he was just this really great, funny guy who you wanted to be around. On May 29th, Juanita let Coleman take her two kids, nine-year-old Vernita and seven-year-old Brandon, to a carnival. When they got back, Coleman asked if he could take Vernita with him to pick up a stereo system. Juanita said it was too late, it was a school night, she had to get to bed. But Coleman promised it wouldn't take long, they'd be back quickly, so Juanita acquiesced. They left around 10.35 and never came back. Juanita called the police at 1 in the morning to report Vernita missing and report that she left the house with a man named Robert Knight. So Alton Coleman brazenly showed up the very next morning to his arraignment on those rape charges. The police had not yet connected Coleman to this Robert Knight identity, so they had no reason to hold him or suspect he had anything to do with a missing child. When his arraignment was done, he was on his way home. Meanwhile, they had Juanita looking through mugshot books to try to identify this Robert Knight, and she landed on Coleman's picture. So the police went out looking for him. He was not at any of his relatives' houses. He wasn't at his grandmother's house. But when they got to his grandmother's house, Deborah Brown was there. She told them that Coleman had come home and told her that he did something wrong, but she didn't know where he currently was. They had some type of APB on him because they got a call pretty soon that Coleman was seen on a train going into Chicago, but he got off the train and got in a cab. And the patrol was quick. They found the taxi. When they pulled it over, Coleman was still in it. But he got out and fled. As quick as they were to track him down, they couldn't keep up with him on foot, and he got away. They went back to his grandmother's house to see if he tried to sneak back there. And now they found that Deborah Brown was gone, too. Wherever she went, they were pretty sure it was to meet back up with Coleman. In backtracking Coleman's movements from the night before to find Vernita, they discovered that Coleman and Vernita were seen at a tavern in Kenosha, about 30 minutes away. And this would have been about 11.30, 11.35. They then got into a cab and took a 20-minute drive to Zion, Illinois, and the cab driver was under the impression they were picking up a stereo system. So I assume Coleman was still talking to Vernita as though this ruse was true. But instead of getting out of the cab when they got to the stop, Coleman asked the driver to instead take them out to Waukegan to Slater's Barbecue, and this was another 15-minute drive. They were then seen walking near Slater's around 1.30 in the morning. It wasn't a definitive identification, but it did line up with what the cab driver had said and how many people are really walking around with children at 1.30 in the morning. They searched the area, but they could not find Vernita, and it looked like Coleman was on the run. 
From what we know, it looks like Coleman initially planned to stick around town. Possibly he thought the fake name he gave Vernita's mom would be enough to mask his identity. He hadn't made any arrangements to leave until after he knew the police were looking for him. He didn't go far at first. Around noon on May 31st, which is the next day, Coleman was spotted in Chicago. A friend drove him to a store where he could get a fake ID. The same friend then drove him to the train station. Coleman was back in Waukegan around 7 p.m. He was at his sister's house. Someone tipped police off that he was there, but as they pulled up, they saw Coleman book it, and again, he got away on foot. Coleman then stayed at someone else's house for that night, laying low, and on June 1st, he borrowed the man's car to run to the store. Of course, he never came back. Four days later, he and Brown turned up in Gary, Indiana, which is about an hour and a half drive from Waukegan. It looks like they planned on staying in Gary for a while because they found an apartment and moved in. Then on June 18th, about two weeks after getting to Gary, Coleman attacked again. Seven-year-old Tamika Turks and her nine-year-old relative named Annie were walking back to Tamika's house after going to the store. The two little girls were technically niece and aunt, but they were so close in age that they acted more like cousins. As they were heading home and nearly there, Coleman and Brown both approached the girls. They lured them away by offering to play a game with them. I have to imagine that Deborah Brown, a woman being with Coleman, likely disarmed the girls a bit, and they did go off with them. They walked for about 40 minutes with Deborah until they got to a secluded wooded spot, and Coleman popped out, and the attack began. He and Deborah beat and strangled both girls, and one of the girls was sexually assaulted. They managed to kill Tamika, but Annie was just unconscious when they left her there. She ended up waking up and got herself out of the woods where someone found her and called the authorities. People then went into the woods to look for Tamika, and that's when they discovered her body. Annie was severely injured and remained in the hospital for a while. She was shown a series of photo lineups, and the first time she saw Alton Coleman's picture, she picked him out. But then the next time, she didn't pick him out. But then the next time, she did. So you can say she identified him, but as you can imagine, any defense attorney will challenge the reliability of this, since it wasn't every time that she picked him out. The same day Tamika and Annie were found, Vernita White's body was finally found in an abandoned apartment building about two blocks from Slater's Barbecue, which is where Coleman and Vernita were last seen together. The coroner said he couldn't tell for sure if she had been sexually assaulted, but her underwear was on the wrong way. And since this is Alton Coleman we're talking about, I'm going to go with probably, but authorities went with unlikely for some reason. 
I don't know what made them think she wasn't sexually assaulted. There must be some other evidence that we're not hearing. Cause of death was easy to establish because the ligature was still around her neck when she was found. So now we have two children, Alton Coleman, murdered, and one he severely injured, but the crimes would take a little bit of time before they were connected. On June 18th, the same day Tamika and Annie first went missing, a 25-year-old Gary, Indiana woman named Donna Williams also went missing. She had recently become friends with a couple she thought were named Phil and Pam, who had just moved to the area from Boston, Massachusetts. And of course, this was Coleman and Brown. Donna invited them to go to church with her. After setting up chairs at the church on June 18th in the evening, she left to go pick up Coleman and Brown. Donna was never seen alive again. Then on June 24th, Coleman and Brown kidnapped a 28-year-old woman named Darlene McKenney, but now they're in Detroit. They made it from Gary, Indiana to Detroit in Donna's car. They demanded Darlene drive them to Ohio. But Darlene was somehow able to escape not long into the drive. She was just outside of Detroit when she was able to make a break for it, thankfully. Two days later, Donna's car was found in Detroit, three and a half hours away from Gary. In the car, they found Coleman's fingerprint on the glove compartment and a fake ID with Deborah Brown's picture on it. But it had the name Lisa Fisher. So now they know one alias the couple were using. The timeline here looks like Coleman and Brown attacked Tamika and Annie, left them in the woods, attacked Donna in order to steal her car, and headed to Detroit. In Detroit, they tried to carjack someone else to then get them to Ohio. Donna remained missing for a couple of weeks until an anonymous tip came in that her body was in an abandoned building not far from where her car was found. This was July 11th. But by this point, Coleman and Brown were long gone from Detroit. Between June 28th and July 2nd, Coleman and Brown attacked and robbed multiple people. They stole a car from the last person they robbed in Detroit and drove it to Toledo, Ohio. In Toledo, they charmed their way into another home. This time, it was a minister who invited the couple over for dinner. At the pastor's house, they met a 30-year-old recently divorced mother of five named Virginia Temple. On July 6th, Coleman and Brown, having somehow figured out where Virginia lived, broke in during the overnight hours. They killed Virginia and her nine-year-old daughter, Rochelle, with Coleman also sexually assaulting the little girl. When the other kids woke up the next morning and couldn't find their mom or their sister, they called the police. Their bodies were found in a crawl space under the house. After this double murder, Coleman and Brown robbed another house in Toledo where they stole another car and headed to Dayton, Ohio, two more hours away. At this point, the police know who they're looking for for most of these. Coleman and Brown had to stay on the move at this point because the FBI was about two steps behind them. By the time the FBI would show up in the city, Coleman and Brown were fleeing it. 
In Dayton, Ohio, on July 7th, they befriended an elderly couple named Millard and Catherine Gay. The Gays were renting out a room, so from the 7th to the 9th, Coleman and Brown stayed with them. On the 9th, they all went to church, and then the elderly couple drove Coleman and Brown to Cincinnati, which is another hour south. They did not, for whatever reason, attack this couple. But within two days of being in Cincinnati, Coleman and Brown struck again. There are a lot of conflicting stories about what happened, so I'm just going to take this from the appellate judgment's summary of facts. 15-year-old Tony Story left her house at 10 a.m. to go to the junior high for a summer program. She was seen there at 11.45 by a teacher, but at 4.30, her parents called the police to report her missing because she should have been home already. Around 5 or 6 p.m., so after her parents had called the police, a classmate saw her with a man and a woman who he didn't know, but they were adults. The next day, Alton Coleman was added to the FBI's 10 most wanted list. The announcement connected him to all of the previously mentioned cases, but not Tony because her parents had barely reported her missing at this point. As far as the FBI knew, Coleman and Brown had last been seen in Toledo driving a stolen car. At this point, they don't know that Coleman and Brown had already traded that car for another one in Dayton, and now we're in Cincinnati. But they weren't going to be in Cincinnati for long. As the news that Tony was missing started hitting, Coleman and Brown bicycled to Norwood, Ohio, which is about a 40-minute trip on a bike. So they were gone by the time Tony's body was found in a vacant apartment on July 19th. When her body was found, it was linked quickly to Coleman and Brown. Under her body was a bracelet that had been stolen from a previous crime scene. Brown's fingerprint was at the scene. And then, of course, there's that eyewitness. He was able to identify Coleman as the man who was talking to Tony. Tony's body was still dressed in the shorts she had been last seen in, but due to the decomposition, they couldn't tell if she had been raped. There was an odd clue that's not mentioned at all in the appellate document, but has been reported. Above Tony's body in lipstick, someone wrote a racial slur. The whole thing said, I hate, N-word, period, death, period. There are also reports that Tony was white, making this seem like there was a racial component to this murder. The only white victim has this awful message written above them. But Tony actually was not white. I don't know how or where that entered the reporting, but that is not true. So if we're excluding a racial component, this may have been a sloppy attempt to throw the police off. But Coleman and Brown already knew the cops were on their trail. Why worry about this one murder when police already suspected you and four or five others and were actively looking for you? The most respectable, as in fact-checked, source that Haley and I found this information about what was written on the wall was the Cincinnati Post. And it actually was the 
only source. I couldn't find it anywhere else. Everyone else who had it was citing from the Cincinnati Post, or they were copying from Wikipedia. Since it didn't show up in the appellate document or anywhere else, I wonder if this message was there, but investigators don't believe Coleman and Brown wrote it. It was an abandoned building. It is possible someone graffitied that message before they were even there. Anyway, well, Tony was still missing. So before they found her, Coleman and Brown were in Norwood having gotten there on their bicycles. Not their bicycles. I'm sure they stole those as well. On July 13th, they used another ruse to get into the home of Harry and Marlene Walters, a couple in their mid-40s. They were selling a camper, and Coleman feigned interest in buying it. He worked his charm on them, and they sat out on the porch that morning, having coffee, chatting about life, about the camper, about all that stuff. Neighbors said they saw them out there for a decent amount of time, just having a very normal conversation. Harry then invited them inside. Once in the house, Coleman and Brown attacked the couple. They beat them horrifically in their heads. They used a candlestick. They used a pair of vice grips. They used a soda bottle. They basically used whatever was within reach. They left them bound in the basement and stole their car and some other items of value. Their 19-year-old daughter, Sherry, came home about 3.45 in the afternoon and the house was ransacked. She couldn't find her parents anywhere. She was in a panic. She tried to call her grandparents to figure out what was going on, but the phone line was dead. It had been cut. But the Walters house actually had two separate phone lines, so she went upstairs and used the other phone. Sherry's grandmother told her that she had talked to Marlene earlier that morning and said that they were showing the camper to a couple, and that's all she knew. So Sherry searched the house again, and this time she went to the basement. There she found her parents, both bloodied and unconscious. She first ran to the kitchen to get something to cut her parents loose, but then she ran across the street to tell a neighbor what happened, and she told the neighbor her parents had been killed. Paramedics arrived at 4 p.m. Harry was seriously injured. He pulled through after months and months in the hospital. He was in a coma for several weeks, and he had lasting brain damage. Marlene, however, didn't make it. At the scene, police found the two bicycles, and neighbors said that's what the couple who were there having coffee on the porch were writing when they arrived. They found Coleman and Brown's prints on the bikes in the house, outside the house, and Coleman's fingerprint was on one of the items, I think it was the soda bottle, that was used to beat Marlene. Coleman and Brown then stole the Walters car and drove to Lexington, Kentucky, about an hour and a half away. They abandoned the vehicle in Lexington when they met up with someone named Thomas Harris, it is entirely unclear to me how they know this guy, how they connected with this guy, what previous connection they did or did not have. 
but they met up with him in Kentucky. And together, the three of them kidnapped a 33-year-old college professor, Olene Carmichael. They forced him into his trunk and called his wife demanding a ransom to be paid. The drop was supposed to be some gas station in Richmond, Kentucky. Instead, they drove to Dayton, Ohio, and abandoned the car there with the professor still in the trunk. He was found a few hours later still alive, and Thomas Harris likes to claim he's the one who stopped Coleman from killing the professor. Back in Dayton, Coleman and Brown showed up at the Gay's house again on July 17th. Remember, about 10 days before, they stayed in their house and did absolutely no harm to them. But give it 10 days and the news cycle, Millard and Catherine learned who Coleman and Brown really were. They saw them on TV, and I'm sure they were in contact with the authorities. Millard told them as much. He told them that they knew who they were and what they had done. Coleman then turned to Brown and said, I guess we'll have to burn them, and both of them pulled out guns. Let's remember that the gays were a couple in their 70s right now because this is kind of awesome. Catherine knocked the gun out of Coleman's hand and a full-on brawl started. Millard did end up getting pistol-whipped in the process, and Coleman and Brown being in their 20s and violent people, they did overpower the couple eventually, but this scene is just amazing where they couldn't possibly have expected Catherine and Millard to fight back like this. The gays ended up getting tied up, and Coleman attempted first to strangle Catherine, but he stopped. She said it was before she even passed out, but she could see that things were getting kind of fuzzy. She was pretty close to passing out. But then he stopped and used his gun to try to shoot her, but his gun jammed. For whatever reason, Coleman and Brown decided not to keep trying to kill them and just took money, their car, and left. Still in Dayton, they decided they needed, I guess, to swap cars. So they broke into another couple's home, another elderly couple, and robbed them, took their car, but they left them relatively unharmed. Coleman and Brown then drove two miles west to Indianapolis, where they carjacked 75-year-old Eugene Scott. His body was found on July 19th in a ditch along I-65 in the Zionsville area. He had been shot and stabbed. This would be their last murder. And if we look through the crimes, the killings of the children were sexually motivated. But the attacks and killings of adults were primarily motivated by robbery. Coleman and Brown needed this money to stay on the run to keep buying drugs, and they needed cars to switch up pretty regularly to keep the police from tracking them too easily. After the murder of Eugene Scott, Coleman and Brown, for some reason, decided to go back to the Chicago area. And this move makes no sense, since they were bound to run into someone who recognized them. They were all over the news. And that's precisely what happened. 
While walking in downtown Evanston, someone Coleman knew from high school recognized him and called the police. When the police responded, they found both Coleman and Brown in a park sitting on bleachers. When Brown walked away from the bleachers and was separated from Coleman, authorities made their move. Both were arrested without incident. Though Brown and Coleman offered no resistance to their arrest, Coleman did try to give a fake name. He had attempted to alter his appearance by cutting his hair very short and possibly not on purpose, but he lost a lot of weight in the seven weeks or so he was on the run. So when he was spotted, the Evanston police who had just an old mugshot of him couldn't tell 100% that it was him. But Deborah Brown gave her real name and then they later identified Coleman through fingerprints. Coleman had two knives on him when he was caught. Brown had a gun. They were both given incredibly high bail. Coleman's was $25 million in 1984 money. Deborah's was $20 million. So Coleman's would have been more like $60 million today, and Deborah's a bit under that. But let's be honest, they could have made their bail $10,000 and they weren't going to make it. They had nothing and their families had next to nothing. Bailing out was never a likely scenario, no matter what the bail was set at. In all, Alton Coleman committed eight murders, three kidnappings, and 14 armed robberies in a period of 53 days. Which crimes Brown participated in would be up for debate, and what culpability she had would possibly never be fully settled. Even when the two were still on their spree, the FBI did not put Brown on the top 10 list, just Coleman. They said that their impression was that the relationship was master slave and that 21 year old Deborah Brown may not be completely acting of her own free will. At some point between the arrests and before their first trial, Brown and Coleman asked the judge for permission to get married, and he wouldn't let them. And if you're a cynic like me, you're going to assume that this was some attempt to get spousal privilege, which would prevent them from being compelled to testify against each other but they didn't need spousal privilege. They were both being accused of these crimes and they could just take the fifth to avoid self-incrimination. They didn't need spousal privilege to be invoked at all. They could have just not testified, but they may not have known that. It's also possible this idea of getting married was just another manipulation on Coleman's part he was going to lose control of Brown when they were arrested and separated, when he couldn't get to her. By marrying her, he may have thought she would be less likely to flip on him to try to cut a deal. But it didn't end up mattering in the end because the judge would not let them get married. After the arrests on this large number of charges, the police in multiple jurisdictions had to come together to discuss 
what to do next as far as prosecuting these. The first trial was actually on one of the lesser charges. It was the kidnapping of the college professor in Kentucky. They both pleaded guilty along with their accomplice, Thomas Harris. In January 1985, they were sentenced to 20 years in prison. It isn't surprising that they pleaded guilty and opted not to fight these charges. They were facing charges that could land them with the death penalty, so their lawyers probably recommended focusing on those. With both of them locked up for the next 7 to 10 years, depending on parole, prosecutors were ready to start trying them for the murders, and they began with the strongest case first, the murder of Marlene Walters in Ohio and the attempted murder of her husband, Harry. They had Harry as an eyewitness who could identify who attacked them. They had fingerprints of both of them at the scene. They had neighbors who saw both of them. This was a slam dunk when the trial began in April 1985. They were not tried together. Rather, they had Coleman's trial. As soon as it was over, they had Brown's trial. They were both found guilty of everything as expected. The sentence was going to be the real question because the state was looking for the death penalty for both of them. During Alton Coleman's sentencing, Deborah Brown took the stand and she took the fall. She said Coleman was upstairs tossing the place, looking for things to steal while she beat Marlene to death. Coleman wasn't even in the room. She further said she didn't care that she killed someone and that she had fun doing it. This testimony was shocking to everyone who knew her from before she met Alton Coleman. She had never, ever been violent. And now she was claiming she enjoyed beating someone to death. It didn't make sense to them to see this huge change in her behavior. For Coleman's part, he said Brown was telling the truth. He said she was high, she was out of control, and she murdered Marlene. But very few people believed them. Coleman was portrayed by the state as the one who actually killed Marlene Walters. Brown was trying to take the blame so Coleman would be spared the death penalty. It didn't work. Coleman got the death penalty. Brown, who was also found guilty, was given a life without parole sentence. These two sentences make it pretty clear who they thought actually went through the physical act of killing Marlene. Pretty much as soon as this trial was over, they went on to the trial for the murder of Tony Story, which was another Ohio case. Both Coleman and Brown waived their right to be tried separately. Brown would later say through an appellate filing that she wanted the trials to be joint. She wanted them together because that was a significant part of her defense strategy. My guess is that there was going to be an element of pointing the finger at Coleman, but the state opted to try them separately. The evidence was damning against them, and they were both convicted. In June 1985, they were both given death sentences. 
The next trial started March 31st, 1986, and this was Alton Coleman's trial in Indiana for the murder of Tamika Turks and the attack on Annie. Annie was now 11 or 12 years old, and she had to testify against him. She was on the stand for like 40 minutes. The defense did attack the identification since that was the primary evidence against Coleman, but I'm sure they didn't jump and pounce in cross-examination against a traumatized 12-year-old. But they did bring up to the jury that Annie wasn't wearing her glasses at the time of the attack. She was inconsistent in her photo identifications. So how could they rely on her? To rebut this, the prosecution put her eye doctor on the stand, and he testified that with her eyesight, she could have seen her attacker just fine under the circumstances. Then at one point, the trial was thrown into a little chaos. Prosecutor Thomas Vaines did a frankly dumb thing. He wrote a note that said, quote, pissy, you got the balls to testify, question mark. And in parentheses next to the word balls, it said ball. He put this note on the elevator from the holding cell to the courtroom, the one Coleman took every day to his trial. Pissy was referring to the childhood nickname he hated, and the ball referred to him having one testicle. Coleman would later say that this note upset him so much that he couldn't really fairly decide whether or not to testify, and so this affected his right to a fair trial. To some degree, I get the temptation to goad a person who did what Coleman did, but this wasn't okay. In my view, Vaines was letting the case get to him and it affected his professional judgment. He's a human being, after all, and what Coleman did to Tamika and Annie was horrific, and I'm sure Vaines had talked to Annie, talked to the families, understood their pain. He ended up having to step down from the case at this point. He was held in contempt by the court. There wasn't a mistrial or anything. They were getting pretty close to the end of the trial, from my understanding. When it came to deliberations, the jury took two hours before finding Coleman guilty, and it was another death sentence. Brown's trial for her role in Tamika's murder and Annie's attack began in May 1986. The evidence against her was Annie's identification, but also her own confession that she gave to FBI agents shortly after her arrest. This trial was a year after she tried to take the blame for Marlene Walters' murder, and whatever spell Coleman had over her was now gone. Her defense was Coleman had domination over her, and her attorney told the jury about her low IQ. That was a mitigating factor. It made it easier for Coleman to manipulate her. But the jury didn't buy it. Brown was found guilty and given the death penalty. In January 1987, Coleman finally went to trial for the murder that started his flight and spree killings, little Vernita Wheat. Of course, Deborah was not there for this one, 
So she did not go on trial. In this trial, which would be his fourth murder trial, Coleman decided to serve as his own attorney. He was being advised by two actual attorneys who had him file a motion to suppress a statement he made after getting arrested. When he was in Chicago, he said to an FBI agent that he was tired of running and didn't want to hurt any more people. It was as close to confessing as Coleman got, so of course he wanted it out. The state, of course, wanted it in. The judge ruled in Coleman's favor, so the jury never heard it. Coleman's defense was essentially, no one saw me do it. But several people saw Coleman with Vernita, and her poor mother testified about that last night she saw her daughter and Coleman taking her out of the house. His fingerprint was at the crime scene. No one had to see him kill her to know he was guilty. And the jury took 30 minutes before convicting him. And he got the death penalty again. So Coleman has four death sentences in three states. Brown has one life without parole sentence and then two death sentences. The states decided not to go through the time, expense, and trauma of any more trials. Even if Brown and Coleman managed to get one conviction overturned, it was unlikely they would get all of them reversed. Coleman and Brown were not getting out of jail, and it looked unlikely they would even get off death row. Another consideration was that as long as they had pending charges, they couldn't move ahead with their appeals process on the death penalty cases, and that would delay their execution date. So all of the other charges were dropped. And now we're in the appellate process. So let's start with Brown. So to recap, death sentence in Ohio and Indiana and is appealing in both. Her death sentence in Ohio was commuted when the outgoing governor, Richard Celeste, January 1991, he was commuting people on his way out of office. There were 101 people on death row in Ohio at the time, and he picked eight to commute their sentences. He said he chose Brown because of her low IQ and all those expert reports saying that she was in this dominant, submissive relationship with Coleman. So now she's in Ohio with two life without parole sentences, but she still had that death sentence in Indiana. So she was figuratively on Indiana's death row, though she remained housed in Ohio. And she kept appealing. She kept appealing her Indiana death sentence for Tamika's murder, and she kept appealing anything in Ohio that she could. I won't go through the finer points because it gets down to very minor details. For instance, she claimed her indictment wasn't valid because the grand jury didn't have enough people on it. I mean, little tiny technicalities. The court was very, very unlikely to overturn a conviction based on these. There were a couple interesting points, and one was that she wanted her confession to Tamika's murder thrown out because she asked for a lawyer before giving it. And she did. She asked for a lawyer when she was arrested. But she didn't confess to those officers. She confessed to the FBI. 
So what happened was she invoked her Miranda rights with the police while the FBI agents were not in the room. When they came and picked her up to take her into federal custody, they re-Mirandized her, and she did not ask for a lawyer at that point. So the court basically ruled that just like you can ask for a lawyer at any time, even if you've previously waived the right, you can also waive the right at any time, even after you've invoked it. Suspects have full control over this right, whether they're waiving it or invoking it, and Brown chose to speak without an attorney. It's not like they badgered her into it. The other interesting thing that came up was with a different appellate petition, and this one was one of those discovery-slash-Brady violation complaints. The FBI had created a psychological profile on both Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown when they were on the run, and they added to it after they were caught. Before her trial, the state had these files and the FBI wanted them back. But Brown's defense wanted to use them themselves, and they needed more time to review all of it. They were hoping to find some type of mitigating factor in there that might save Brown from lethal injection. The state told the judge that there was no exculpatory material in the file, so the judge said okay and sent them back to the FBI. And this scenario is what makes me want to bang my head on the wall about discovery and exculpatory materials. It's the prosecution's job to determine what needs to be turned over. There is no neutral third party in most cases, which should be fine because the state's interest should be in justice, not in winning at all costs. But look at how many trials have been overturned because the prosecutor decided not to do this. They decided to keep things to themselves, whether it's the existence of untested evidence, information on alternative suspects, or deals they made with critical witnesses in order to get them to testify. The judge in this case did not review the FBI file. They just let the DA tell them if it was exculpatory or not, and the DA said nope, and so the defense did not get it. So in preparation for her appeals, Brown's attorneys requested the files, and in them, they found documents that they believe were exculpatory and should have been turned over. All these documents supported the idea that Brown was submissive to Coleman, that it was an abusive relationship, that he exercised coercive control over her, When she was arrested, she had scars on her body, scratches on her face, all from Coleman. Also noted that she had an abusive childhood and that carried into her adult relationship with Coleman. And the agents also noted in one of the documents that when they talked to Brown, she was incredibly docile, like her family described her. They wrote that they believed she was easy to control and that she was under Coleman's control. The appellate court wrote that they did find this persuasive. They do think this should have been turned over, but there's that second part of a Brady claim. 
Yes, the material should have been turned over, but did not turning it over likely change the outcome of the trial or the sentence? And in this case, the court said it didn't. Because everything in those reports came up in the sentencing phase, the defense called experts who testified to all of that. And Brown was still given a death sentence. But personally, I think the FBI saying this would have swayed the jury in a way that the defense's hired experts did not. There is always that voice in the back of people's minds with experts in court. You have to ask, are they just hired guns saying what they're paid to say? There's a little bit more reason to question their credibility than there is with, say, an FBI agent who is saying something that benefits the defense. That would have a lot more weight than someone the defense paid to say it. But I do agree with the court that it likely wouldn't have changed her sentence, not for the reason they gave, but because I think Brown got the death penalty because what happened to Tamika was so horrific. I don't think the jury was able to separate that from the significant mitigating factors in Brown's case. Short of Coleman putting a gun to her head and making her participate in the attacks at gunpoint, I think the jury, a group of human beings, were always going to give her the death penalty, no matter what other evidence they heard. All of Brown's appeals against her Indiana death sentence did fail, but she still got a sentence modification from the Indiana Attorney General in late 2018. The county prosecutor and the Indiana Attorney General's office together agreed to change her sentence to 140 years in prison, which is the maximum penalty other than death that they could give her that was in line with the sentencing laws at the time she was convicted. And this 140 years was consecutive to her two life-without-parole sentences in Ohio, which were also consecutive. So she had to serve a life sentence followed by another life sentence followed by 140 years. In exchange for the death penalty going away, Brown agreed to stop challenging her Indiana conviction, accept the verdict, and take the new sentence. So here's what changed. Before 2002, the Supreme Court upheld death sentences for people with intellectual disabilities, people who tested with low IQs. They ruled pretty consistently that an intellectual disability would be presented as a mitigating factor, but it didn't necessarily mean the person could not have the death penalty under the Eighth Amendment right to a fair punishment for a crime. So that's the law Brown was sentenced under. The jury had to consider her low IQ, but it didn't preclude a death sentence. Then in 2002, the Supreme Court took a turn. They ruled in Atkins v. Virginia that executing people with intellectual disabilities does violate the Eighth Amendment. They defined it loosely as an IQ of about 70. 
but they left it up to states to define what constitutes an intellectual disability in their jurisdiction. They had a chance to revisit this in 2014 in Hall v. Florida, because Florida decided that an IQ of 70 was the hard and fast cutoff. The Supreme Court ruled that because of the margin of error in IQ tests, states couldn't have a cutoff like this. In the instances of borderline cases, which they defined as IQs of 70 to 75, there needed to be another assessment done outside of the IQ test. Well, Brown's score was 74 as an adult, and that's the highest score she had had because she was previously tested at 59. And I doubt additional testing is going to bring her score up. Indiana, it seems, agrees because they didn't feel they could carry out her execution in a constitutional way. I know this decision has upset members of Tamika's family. They've said so. But psychology experts and behavioral experts have all said Brown has a low IQ and was under Coleman's coercive control at the time of these crimes. Legal experts have looked at the case, and they cannot uphold the constitutionality of the death penalty in this case. There just wasn't any other fair option. This decision spared her life, but Brown will die in prison. She is not eligible for parole in Ohio at all, which is where she's serving. But let's say she somehow overturned both of those convictions and was now no longer a prisoner in Ohio. She would then move to Indiana to serve out her 140 years. Because Indiana made it consecutive to her Ohio sentences, she would get no credit for 35 years or so she has already served. The clock would start over. So even if she would be eligible for parole after 20 or 30 years of that 140-year sentence, she's not going to live to see that day. Brown was 21 years old when she was arrested. She's now 57 years old. She has spent virtually her entire adult life in prison. She spent more time locked up than she ever was free. And I imagine at this point, after decades of hoping just to spare her life, maybe she's ready to accept this compromise and do the rest of her time. Now, Alton Coleman's story went a different way. He converted to Christianity in prison, and to somewhat back up this change, he did not have a single infraction the entire time he was in prison, which is interesting to me because he was so violent before being locked up. He showed very little self-control, but then once he's locked up, he's completely compliant. But I kind of wonder if there's a little bit of manipulation in this. He had an extreme amount of charm, which is demonstrated by all the people who let him into their houses. So I wonder if he knew compliance with the guards would get him what he wanted. It would make his life 
easier, so that's what he did. According to Coleman, though, it's drugs that were at the root of this. When he got clean in prison, his violent impulses quieted. We don't know, but he may have also been treated with psychiatric medications at this point. I don't know the whole story. He did manage to get one of his death sentences overturned in Ohio, the one for the murder of Tony Story, and this was due to inadequate legal counsel. His attorneys had not investigated his background and his childhood, which were chock full of mitigating circumstances. So the appellate court overturned the death penalty, but that's not the verdict. He still remained convicted. Here's the quirk of this, though. He made the same argument in the Marlene Walters case with pretty much the same circumstances. His attorneys did not look into his childhood for those mitigating factors. But it was a different panel of judges, and they decided it wasn't enough to overturn his death sentence. Coleman appealed this up the chain since it's a clear inconsistency in the application of appellate law, but it went nowhere. These contradictory rulings are still both case law. Future appellate attorneys can cite either one of them to show some type of precedent in their own arguments. And that's so weird. And it's also a lot more subjectivity than most of us want in an appellate court, particularly when we're talking about the death penalty. The same set of circumstances should be getting the same ruling. Regardless, because they didn't accept it with Marlene Walters, he still had one death sentence in Ohio. Then he had the one in Illinois, which at the time had a moratorium on the death penalty, and they've since gotten rid of it entirely. And then he had one in Indiana, which was a state that didn't move very quickly with executions. So it seemed inevitable that Ohio would be the state to finally execute him. And after Coleman exhausted all of his appeals, his execution date in Ohio was set for April 22, 2002, for the murder of Marlene Walters. Not quite a week ahead of time, the parole authority in Ohio held a clemency hearing. They discussed Coleman's abusive upbringing with so much neglect, where violence was his norm. They brought up brain scans that showed he had brain damage to his frontal lobe. It very likely was caused by multiple factors, one being his mother's prenatal substance abuse, another being previous head injury or injuries. And the frontal lobe, as we know, is where a lot of impulse control and regulation happens. At the hearing, Maxine's husband spoke and Harry expressed his frustration that the last 17 years had been so much about Alton Coleman's rights and not about the victims. And I can only imagine what that felt like for him. Virginia and Rochelle Temple's family also attended the hearing, and Virginia and Rochelle were the mother-daughter pair who Coleman had killed. 
because that was one of the cases that was never prosecuted, they were not permitted to speak. But they got their message across. They went into that hearing wearing shirts with Virginia and Rochelle's pictures on them. After the board deliberated, they decided not to grant clemency. They acknowledged Coleman's mitigating factors. They didn't deny it. They said, yeah, he had an abusive childhood. He probably had brain damage. But they ruled the aggravating factors, outweighed those mitigating factors. The brutality of his attack on Marlene trumped whatever was in his past that got him there. So in a vote of 10 to 0, Coleman's last real hope was over. The night before his execution, he said he took responsibility for what he did and that he had messed up horribly in his life. On April 26, 2002, at 10.13 a.m., 46-year-old Alton Coleman was executed by lethal injection. His final words were him just repeating, the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, over and over again until he fell asleep. In cases where there are several victims like this, so in mass murders or spree killings or serial killings, we often forget the names of the victims. It's not because we don't care or because we're more interested in the killers. It's because it's very tragically a lot of names. We hear them for a bit and we hear their story. And then we move to the next case and we talk about that story and those names. But what we're hearing throughout all of the coverage are the killers' names. That's just how it is. And I don't like how quick we are to demonize ourselves or demonize others for not remembering the victims individually, because honestly, it is a lot of information. But I do think we should do our best to always remember the victims and always remember that behind this story is a lot of trauma for the killers trauma they endured. And even more than that, there is a lot of trauma they inflicted. We need to remember the victims. In some way, we need to give them the last word. So I'm going to end this episode by reading the names of those murdered on this crime spree in 1984. Vernita Wheat, age nine. Tamika Turks, age 7, Donna Williams, age 25, Virginia Temple, age 30, Rochelle Temple, age 9, Tony Story, age 15, Marlene Walters, age 44, and Eugene Scott, age 75. 